We've been examining Jesus' conversation with a, a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, that is a, an elite class of religious people that lived during that day and did ministry during that day. He was a Pharisee and he was a ruling member of Israel's Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. He was a bigwig, we'll put it that way. He became a superficial believer in Jesus, and what that means is that he had some kind of faith in Jesus, but he wasn't trusting in Jesus' perfected work and righteousness for his salvation. He was just kind of enamored with Jesus' supernatural power and ability to perform miracles, and that's what attracted him to Jesus. That's why he came to Jesus. It wasn't really a faith thing. It was really kind of superficial, and he'd saw or witnessed Jesus performing miracles during a Passover festival, which lasts about a week long. And, and he was just kind of overwhelmed by Jesus' power, and he comes to him one night and wants to discuss the miracles with Jesus. He goes to Jesus literally in the middle of the night. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't want the other religious leaders that he works with to see him go because they were adversaries to Jesus. So he goes at night to basically discuss the miracles, and maybe Jesus' supernatural power. But Jesus had different plans for their encounter. In His omniscience, which means all-knowingness, He knows all things because He is God, Jesus perceived Nicodemus's true need and proceeded to unpack biblical salvation. So Nicodemus goes to have a conversation with Jesus about this, but Jesus knows what's actually going on with him and knows his true position and heart and uh, interrupts the situation and brings in a much more important subject, and that is the subject of salvation, according to the Bible, according to Jesus. And Jesus begins with the monergistic, that means God alone, act called regeneration, uh, where God supernaturally causes a sinner to be born again through the Holy Spirit. And you know, Jesus gave the example of physical birth in that text, and that kind of helped us to put handles on it. But he opens up with this monergistic act of regeneration, making a person new, having them pass from death to life, making them a new creation. That's the work of God and God alone. That's why it's monergistic. So he starts with that. After presenting regeneration, Jesus tells him about the necessity of faith or belief. Those who believe, and Jesus says it like this, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing, those who believe in the God-man, that's Jesus, right? Jesus is fully God, fully man. Those who believe in the totality of who Jesus is shall receive, according to what the Lord says, eternal life. And I described eternal life as a mercy-based, grace-centered, love-saturated, joy-filled, intimate relationship with the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That lasts forever and ever and ever. It's eternal, right? Lastly, Jesus tells Nicodemus about repentance. That's what we have come to in the text. This is the, 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 the third sign of true conversion, if you want to put it that way. This is the third thing that Jesus presents to Nicodemus. It's repentance. What is repentance? How many of us in this room have heard that word or know of that word and we've heard maybe a preacher say, you better repent and you better do this and you better do that? How many of us in this room kind of have a sense of what that means? Most of us and others who are smart enough not to put their hand up because I might call on them later. Um, I won't. I won't call on you. I won't at all. I won't call on you, Shelly. She's like, no, I won't. So what is repentance? What, what, what does it mean? What is that? Well, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia. There's a couple of variations of it in the New Testament. Metanoia is pretty pretty common. It shows up about 50 times in the New Testament. It basically means to change direction, okay? A 180. Imagine a 180-degree circle. It's half of a circle. 
So repentance boiled down means to be going this way and to not go this way anymore and to turn around and go in a different direction, to go back if you want to put it that way. So it means to change direction. A repentant person can be described as one who hates sin, loves God, and turns from one to the other. So you get the idea of somebody who was headed in the the direction of sin and death and hell and all that, and they switch directions and go toward God, the opposite of towards sin and hell. And so I think in a nutshell, that's repentance. It's deeper and broader than that, as we will see, but that's kind of what it is. As with faith, repentance also springs forth from regeneration. Remember how we talked about the new birth is really the starting point and and all of the things of God's grace and salvation in us kind of start from there? So I want you to envision a person being born again and then the the things that follow are faith in in Jesus Christ. And what is faith? It's knowledge, conviction, and trust in Him and and His finished work. And and, and then then the next thing that kind of comes into it, maybe they happen at the same time, they're, they're really intertwined, is repentance, this idea of turning and changing direction. So when a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when they are born again, two things immediately follow. Faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and repentance, a change of direction away from sin toward God. Now, I don't want you to think that, I don't want you to think of repentance as perfection because some will say that. Well, I've turned away, I turn away from sin. I love God now. I don't love sin, but I find myself self still sinning on occasion and doing things. I don't, that, repentance doesn't mean perfection. It really has to do with a disposition and an attitude, a default mode, a way of operating. A repentant person is someone who has that instilled in them, and it's now natural for them to be turning from sin. doesn't mean that they don't sin, but it means that they hate it when they sin. So think of it like that, right? How many of you really regret when you sin? You can honestly say you do. You know, you realize something. You're like, man, I feel like such a dog. What was I? Sometimes we don't even realize what we've been doing. And then somebody has to bring it up to us. Think of King David, who got himself involved in some serious sin and had a prophet reveal it to him. And he was like, man, that's horrible. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about you. Okay, I'm going to take off for a while. I'll be back in about six years. I'm going to flog myself, you know. He writes Psalm 51 in response. That's what repentance is. And, and like faith, it's embedded in our new nature as children of God. I like to refer to repentance as a new love. A new love. That's what I've entitled the message, a new love. When a person is, is first born again, when they are first regenerated, he or she will begin, for the first time ever really in the truest sense, they will begin to love God and love the things of God, and they will begin to hate sin and to turn away from sin. So it really has to do with a a, a change of attitude and a change of what we truly love. We go from loving sin and pursuing that and running to it and even hiding it to despising it, turning away and loving God instead and loving the things of God. What are the things of God? Holiness, righteousness, purity, loving one another, forgiveness, mercy, those things. So really it has to do with a new default mode and a new set of loves. Think of repentance like that. It is important for us to to understand that repentance is a pattern, not a one-time act. Okay, and some people teach it in a way, and it makes it sound like it's a one-time thing. Well, you need to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, and like that's the end of it. That's not the end of repentance. That's the beginning of repentance. Repentance is a perpetual pattern. It's something that continues on. Why? Because it's embedded in our new nature. It's our new disposition, our new attitude, our new default mode. A born-again believer will live in active repentance, where he or she is perpetually, consistently turning from sin to God. So don't think of it as a, yeah, I repented and I'm done. No, you're still 
repenting. And have you ever heard people say that, right? They say things like, have you repented and turned from your sin? Well, of course, yeah, I love Jesus now and all that, but I'm not done repenting. In fact, I pretty much do it every day and about six times on Mondays. When I run out of coffee, I do a lot of repenting. It's a, it's a perpetual, it's a mode. It's a lifestyle. We just keep doing it. When we find ourselves at odds with God's will, as children of God, we say no to that, and we turn from it. In the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, we begin to have victory over certain sins. doesn't mean we don't re-engage them, but you understand what I'm saying, right? It is an active process, constantly, constantly doing it, sometimes more than on certain days than others. It is important to note that repentance and confession are not the same thing. Confession is acknowledgement of sin. It's, it's bringing your sins before God and before other Christians that you trust, right? That's, it's acknowledgement and, and, and confessing those things out loud or to someone or even in the quietness of a place where you, know, you get with the Lord. Confession is acknowledgement. Repentance is doing something about the sin. Confession is, is, is acknowledgement. Repentance is action. If someone says, repent of your sin, it's not just, okay, I confess my sin, I've repented, I'm good. It's actively war against sin. Do something about it. If you've done something sinful, work to fix that situation. If you've wronged somebody, you apologize, you, you do what you have to do to reconcile to people or reconcile the situation. So, so confession is like an acknowledgement, but repentance is action. It's action. If we stop at confession, we haven't repented. Repentance means to do something about it. I like to, I like to refer to repentance as rectification. Rectification has to do with correcting what is wrong. Okay? So do you have an idea of what repentance is? It is changing direction. It is loving God now instead of sin. doesn't mean that we don't still trip up in sin, but it means we have a different attitude about it. We have a different set of loves. We love God. We don't love sin. We're not singing the ACDC song, Highway to Hell, and rejoicing for the fact that we're on the highway to hell like some people do, and I'm like, wow, you have no idea what you're doing. Right? We're like, we're like more like Led Zeppelin, and it's a stairway to heaven. Right? You know, we, we switch. We don't switch to that song. We switch to Chris Tomlin or something more wholesome. But we don't rejoice in the idea of hell or sin or any of that. It's about God and about righteousness and about the things of God. Think about it. If you've been born of God, aren't you going to love and want the things of God? You can't be born of God and continue on in the same pattern before your new birth. You're going to be a different person. You're going to be a person of faith, and you're going to be a person that is repentant and lives in active repentance. I know it isn't easy. I know how hard it is to turn from sin. I know how crippling addiction can be. You know, and when we think of addiction, we just think of dope or whatever, but I mean, we all have addictions. Maybe it's to spending. Maybe it's to, to something else, some kind of a baby. Maybe we're addicted to anger and pessimism. I understand how hard it is to fight these things, but here's the difference. The true believer will fight and get dirty. That's it. I'm going to town. I'll throw down. I'm fighting against my sin. I'm fighting against these things. Typically, what we do is we like to fight against everyone else's sins. Well, let me tell you what you've been doing, you know? I don't need you to repent for me. I'll deal with that myself, right? Repentance means you own it, you're turning from it, you love God. Think of it like that. Think of it as correcting a wrong, taking a step of action to fix a scenario or a situation. In the final section, verses 19 through 21, Jesus describes two groups to Nicodemus. He does. He, he, he breaks down two groups to Nicodemus. You have the unrepentant and you have the repentant. So he's leading Nicodemus, right? He's already talked about the new birth. He's talked about what faith looks like. Now he's going to talk about that other essential component that will be there if you're a, a real Christian, if you've been truly converted, and it's repentant. So he's going to show two examples, the unrepentant and the repentant. That's what he does here to Nicodemus. Let's pray before we get to work. Amen? 
Father, thank you for our time together, and I just pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would, would be here with us. I believe He is, that He would be working through Your Word here, applying it, helping us to see the truth. We might have some in this room that are superficial, that they've got one thing without the other. God, we want a holistic conversion, and that's something that only you can do. And so help us to see the error of our way or the, the, the inaccuracy of our conversion. Whatever it is, if there's a problem there, Lord, expose it today, and we pray for your mercy that you would correct it. Maybe, maybe we know we're a true believer and we've just been lagging around with the repentance and all that. Just have your way in this place with us and, and help us to see the truth and to want to live for you. We pray for the Holy Spirit's work and ministry in our hearts here. May we humble ourselves now, pay close attention, and listen to your instruction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. First group, the unrepentant, verses 19 and 20. I'll read it and uh, break it down. Jesus tells Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus begins by telling Nicodemus that that light has come into the world. And and if you were with us several weeks ago, uh, we talked about light. I think it was on week two in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 13, we talked about Light. We talked about light coming into the world and we talked about what the light is and we learned that the light is Jesus. He is the light. So what Jesus is, is, is telling Nicodemus is that he, the light, has come into the world. If you fast forward a few pages over to chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus actually refers to himself as the light of the world. How many of you are familiar with that text? You've heard that. You know, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. So when we see light here, light coming into the world, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus coming into the world. He tells Nicodemus, I have come into the world, the light. What did Jesus do as the light? Primarily, He revealed the Father and made Him known. Jesus is the exact representation and imprint of the Father. Jesus is God. And when Jesus comes as the light, He reveals the Father and the Father's will and the gospel to humanity. Has to do with illumination in a sense. Not in a real deep spiritual sense where everyone will get saved, but He sheds light. As He comes, He sheds light on the Father. He comes as the representative of the Father with the Father's word and truth. Prior to Jesus' coming, the world was in darkness and did not know God. That's the condition that the world was in at that time. There were a lot of people around doing a lot of religion, but they did not know God. The whole world was cast in darkness because of sin and these things. As the light, Jesus also revealed mankind's wickedness sin and depravity. And I'll tell you what, his death on the cross really testifies to that, right? Because he went to the cross because we're all sinful, we're all depraved, we're all lost. And so when he stretches out his arms on the cross and dies on the cross, it is a testimony to the entire world that the world is in big trouble. Big trouble. He didn't, he didn't get crucified in Fred's backyard, where there's high walls and nobody saw it. He got testified on the hill of Golgotha out in the middle of just wide open spaces during the Passover festival where millions of pilgrims were present. He displayed on the cross in a public fashion that we're in big trouble, that we're under sin and and, and just depraved and we're in big, 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 big trouble. Jesus, oh, where am I at here? This is why I always mark my place. So he reveals that the world is in darkness, but he also reveals the Father and mankind's wickedness and depravity, and the cross testifies to those things. Next, Jesus 
reveals to Nicodemus how people respond to the light, how they respond to himself. Remember, he's the light. The light has come into the world. And what do people do? What does the world do in response to Jesus coming? They reject him, right? That's what he says. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They reject the light. The light came, but they rejected the light. They turned away from him. They turned away from Jesus. Why? Because they love the darkness. Why do they love the darkness? Why do sinners love the darkness? Why does fallen humanity love the darkness? Well, typically we love the darkness because we believe that it somehow hides our evil works and deeds from God. Darkness really is evil deeds and all of those things. It's evil in totality, but, but sinners like darkness. They prefer darkness because they believe that it somehow shadows and hides their evil works from God. That somehow they can do things and, and they're hiding these things from, from God who is all present and all seeing and all of these things. They love darkness because they believe that it hides their evil. People avoid the light. They reject Jesus, because they do not want Him to expose their sins. We've got this weird, corrupt view of Jesus today where He's just all love, and He's just all grace, and He's just all this, that, and the other, and He's just, oh man, we just love all of that and a bag of chips, but we don't think of Him as being one who basically exposes sin, one who calls us out. What do you think the cross does? I just described it to you. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin. He does it, but Jesus stood up before all of humanity and said, you're all sinners and I'm on this cross because of you and because of your sin. People avoid Jesus because they do not want Him to expose their sins. If their sins become exposed, they might have to do something about them, right? I might have to change what I'm doing. I might have to become a moral person or whatever it is that's twirling around in their mind. I might have to stop doing what I truly enjoy. This is the way that people reason this stuff out. Well, I don't want to become a part of that thing. I don't want to come to Jesus because then, I, then I'm not going to be able to do these other things so freely. This is the way the human mind works. People reject Jesus. They don't want Him to expose their sin. They don't come to the light. They don't want Him to expose their sin. They don't want to have to change their behavior. It's unthinkable. They don't want to be morally responsible. In fact, that's probably the thing that's under the most attack in our culture today is morality. If we can just redefine what it is, then we can make it whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. They don't want Jesus to expose their sin. They don't want to have to change. They want to keep engaging in the things that they love and prefer. I'll tell you, this explains the current effort to redefine things like gender. I don't know if any of you have been looking into what's been going on with the whole gender. Apparently, there's about 50 genders now. I'm from the old school where there's two. It wasn't that long ago, maybe even five years ago or so, when the actual belief across the nation was that there are two genders, male and female. So a lot of terrible, terrible redefining work has been done just in the last five years. You can talk to somebody who took a sociology class at the community college five years ago, and they'll tell you it was a decent class. Today they'll tell you it was 99% about gender. Ask my son. So lots have been done there, and it's this idea of redefining what gender is. It's no longer a biological reality. Gender is not a biological reality. Gender is a social construct. We have made it up. It's, it's, we have come up with that term and tied it to male and female, and we've got to get out of these shackles because it's not just about male and female, obviously. It's about this. It's about that. It's about I'm a dog. You're a dog. Okay, great. Be a dog. Be a cat. Be, be a giraffe. Be an elephant. Be a buffalo. It's insanity. As one Christian lady calls it, we live in banana land. It's nuts. It's nuts. The transforming of gender from a biological reality to a social construct opens the door to every type of sexual perversion known to man and normalizes them. That's what's actually behind this. This isn't about, you know, well, I I understand how you feel and you should live out what you are according to your feelings. This is about sin and people wanting sin 
and using this redefining of things that we all know. Everyone knows there's two genders, right? That's an expression of the darkness, redefining what gender is so that people can engage in every form of sexual perversion. I read a story, I now have to confess, I read a story about a woman marrying her German shepherd in Germany. At least she went for a pure breed. It came right from Germany. Uh, uh. You can't make this stuff up. Actually, you can. And not only is it crazy banana land, but it's being justified. But I want you to understand that it has to do with darkness and shadowing and cloaking and hiding sin. If we can redefine what sin is, then we can actively engage in it with less resistance and people not coming after us for it or trying to correct us or whatever, right? Sin is no longer sin. In this scenario, the scenario of gender becoming like 49 different things now, a parrot, whatever. In this scenario, positive characterization represents the darkness because it clouds reality. It clouds reality. In reality, though, in true reality, we know gender is is male and female, but in true reality, sexual perversion is never a positive thing, nor is it glorious. It isn't. It's destructive. It brings hopelessness. It tears at us, annihilates us, divides us, kills us. Sin kills, right? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. And so we think that, oh, well, we're doing a good thing by helping people live out what they truly want to be. But really, we're playing the game of darkness and, and, and helping people destroy themselves. Now, what really upsets me is when Christians go along with this stuff. I understand the world's lost and all that. It does what it does. It does some crazy things. Marrying German Shepherds at the top of my list. But I understand what unbelievers do. I was one for 30 years. We do some pretty stupid stuff. I don't understand it when Christians get on board with this stuff. And somebody refers to themselves as, as, as gay because they prefer uh, the same sex. We shouldn't say, yeah, you're a gay person. There's no such thing as a gay person. That's someone who just prefers a different type of sexuality than we do. When we agree that there's gay people, we are justifying full steam ahead what they do. We mustn't do that as believers. We mustn't do that. But we don't want to beat people up. It's not about beating people up. It's not about being right. It's about helping people see the light who is Jesus Christ, the error of their way, and we do that in love, right? Sexual perversion is never positive. It's not glo- I don't care how much people glory in their sin and display it. It's not glorious. It's not. It results in death, in death. And I think at the end of the day, people are just unwilling to ad- ad- admit that they're wrong that they're wrong, they're unwilling to admit that what they're doing is... What they're doing today even defies the laws of nature. A lot of scientists today, secular scientists, can't go along with this stuff because it's a flat-out denial of true science and nature. The laws of nature defies logic. I think people, at the end of the day, they they don't want to come to the light. They want to create more darkness so they can continue to to hide their sin from God or redefine what it is. And at the end of the day, they're just unwilling to admit that they have problems or that what they're doing is wrong and they have no desire to do the right thing. They don't. I think that's really what's going on. And like I said, it really frustrates me when I see Christians going along with it and using the same ter- terminology that the world uses to de- describe itself. We're not supposed to be playing that game. We need to speak the truth in love. In verse 20, Jesus said, everyone, you notice that up there, in verse 24, everyone who does wicked things, He is referring to unregenerate, unbelieving, unrepentant people. He's ultimately referring to unbelievers, just people that are outside of the fold, outside of the body of Christ. They are the proponents of wickedness, and they hate the light. They hate Jesus. Now, you'd be tough to find someone who doesn't know know Jesus, who isn't a believer, that'll just outwardly say, I hate Jesus. 
A lot of people won't say that. A lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm not a Christian or anything. I'd never dare to even call myself something that stupid. But I don't think Jesus was a bad dude. I, you know, I, I don't follow him, but I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he was a good guy. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find him when some, someone just comes out and says, I hate Jesus. Richard Dawkins does it pretty regularly. He's a big scientist. But, you know, most people are not going to say that. But let me tell you something. Their actions shout, I hate you, Jesus. The behavior shouts, I hate you, Jesus. They don't have to say it. But at the, down at the core, proponents of wickedness, those who are outside of this, support this stuff and do this stuff and engage this stuff, they just hate the light. And they hate Jesus. It's hard to believe that people actually hate Jesus. He was such a nice guy. Oh, they hate him. They hate, hate him with every fiber of their being because he calls them out. He exposes their sin. He shines light on their behavior for others to see and for themselves to see. And they don't want anything to do with that. They will not... Come to the light. As I said, they will not come to Jesus because they know He will expose their works. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Now, verse 20 sheds light on an important subject. It's a little side subject, but it's all relative and part of it. What keeps people from coming to Jesus? That's a great question to ask because I ask that myself once in a while. What what? causes or what keeps people from coming to Jesus. And, and because I have a particular theology and view of, of salvation in Scripture, and I believe that God is sovereign, I believe He predestinates, He elects, He's the one that causes the new birth. Some would say, well, according to your theology, it's God that keeps people from coming to Jesus. I'm here to tell you today, it's never God who keeps people from coming to Jesus. It's people who keep people from coming to Jesus. Because they hate the light and love the darkness. God doesn't have to manipulate them or work something out in them to keep them from coming to Jesus so the doctrine of election will stand. He doesn't have to do anything. All He has to do is leave people as they are. Our default mode as sinners is hate Jesus, never come to the light. So who, at the end of the day, keeps people from coming to Jesus? People keep people from coming to Jesus. They love wickedness. They hate the light. God never renders people incapable of coming to Jesus. As I said, He doesn't have to. They render themselves incapable. There has a, there's a rendering that's already taken place back in Adam and Eve's day. It's already happened. And don't just blame them as sinners. We love our sin. Sinners love their sin and hate the light. We keep ourselves coming to, uh, from, from coming to Jesus. That's what we do. Humanity hates God, hates Jesus. So don't think of it as a, as a, I don't even like to think of it as a can't situation. It's not that people can't come to Jesus. It's that people won't come to Jesus under any circumstances. People aren't out there going, I'm just trying to figure out this life and I think it's about Jesus. I'm going to run to him. That's not the way the depraved human mind works. It plugs in every other thing into that slot trying to find satisfaction. It does not go to God. We don't have a default mode of going to God naturally. We run from Him because we hate the light. We hate it. Well, I don't think people hate the light. They do. They hate the light. They hate the light. So it's not a matter of, I can't... If somebody tells you, I just can't come to Jesus, ask why. Well, because then I'd have to deal with... See, it's you that can't because you're making yourself can't. (laughs) You make yourself can't. It's not can't. It's not God says, no, you can't come to Jesus. It's we say, I ain't ain't coming to him no matter what. I won't come to him. That's stupid, that's foolishness. What does it say in one of Paul's epistles? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's not a matter of can, it's a matter of won't. Despising, hating the light. That is our default mode, our default position. It is the antithesis to repentance. The exact opposite. I run to sin. I run from God. I run from the light. I run to darkness. I engage in every form of wickedness. I do exactly what I want whenever I want. But the repentant person says the opposite and runs to God and flees from sin and flees from unrighteousness. You see? It's not that we can't, it's that we won't, because we hate the light. We hate Him. We love our wickedness. Predestination simply means that God chose to override this 
terrible, terrible default mode for a vast multitude of sinners whom the Bible calls the elect. That's the miracle, that God, in His infinite knowledge and in accordance with His own will, chose to save some, and the some is a really, really big number according to Revelation and other passages. Uh, he certainly could have just left us in this, that mode, that natural mode of running from the light and hating the light, but he chose not to do that for some. It's an act of mercy that he's done and sovereign love. If, if he did not take action in accordance with his mercy and his own will and in accordance with his own sovereign love, all of humanity would remain in sin running from the light forever and ever and ever and ever until the world's destroyed. Why? And it's a great question to ask, right? Because this is what comes to my mind. Why, did God, why didn't God predestinate and elect all people to salvation? I'm going to give you the answer right now. I don't know. I don't know why he chose not to save all. I don't know. I can't definitively answer that question. I don't think anyone really can. But God knows the answer. God knows why he did what he did, why he does what he does. And he does all things for his glory, so it probably has something to do with that. But I say, rather than question his wisdom, be a source board over it. How could a Christian ever like, get upset over that? Well, they start thinking of everyone that might not be saved. You don't even know who's going to be saved. Shut up. Rejoice over your salvation, the fact that he chose you. That's what you should be doing, not questioning his wisdom or his plan or his will. Say, I, I can't believe you chose me. I know me. Apparently, you know me. And you, you, you looked, uh, those things didn't play into any of it. We rejoice. We don't question his wisdom. We, just, we don't understand all the answers, but we rejoice in the reality of, our, of, of, of the fact that he's chosen us. That is wonderful. That should just change your life. According to verses 19 through 20, unrepentant people are characterized by loving the darkness, evil, hatred of the light, rejection of the light, and wicked works, right? Those are the descriptors that are plugged in into the set of verses. Let's not forget whom Jesus was discussing these things with or talking to at this moment, right? This isn't just, we think of this as just universal teaching. Well, it certainly is universal that it goes out to all, but this was an intimate conversation with a particular person by the name of Nicodemus, a super religious person. You know, they had they just had all the stuff down. We, we would look at a guy like that and say, boy, he's the most saved person in history. He's got it all, man. And he was actually a superficial rejecter of the light. Just go down to verse 11. You did not receive our testimony. Nicodemus wanted the miracles and power of, of, of Christ. He wanted the blessings of Christ, but he didn't want Christ. He's superficial. Jesus is telling him what? That Nicodemus, you love the darkness and you do evil. You do not come to the light. Oh, it applies to all of us. We better be careful here. But he's talking to somebody in particular. He's talking to, I read the other day that Nicodemus was one of the wealthiest people in Israel at this time. He was one of the wealthiest. He was one of the most religious. He was one of the most influential people. But Jesus, without a doubt, implies that he is all of the above. You love the darkness. You are not coming to the light. You love evil. You love wicked. Can you imagine what must have been going through Nicodemus' mind right here? as a man in his position. Did Jesus just call me a lover of the darkness, a worker of evil? How can this be? Well, obviously he doesn't know me because I'm, I'm at the top in, in, in this religion and I do all these things for God and I do Jesus. just I mean, this has got to be the, the sharpest of all the admonitions in this text. He has been, Jesus has been on Nicodemus from the moment they connected. And this has got to be the sharpest of his corrections. You're a man of darkness, Nicodemus. Your religion doesn't mean anything because you reject me. You reject me. Had to have hit him like a freight train. Let's look at the second group. So that's the unrepentant, right? Now we look at the repentant. Here's the group that Jesus juxtaposes to or contrasts with. He says this in verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The first group, the unrepentant, love the darkness, hate the light, and try to hide their wicked deeds and works from God. Here is the contrast. The second group, the repentant, they do what is true. They come to the light, to Jesus, and do not attempt to keep their works from God. There's the contrast between the first two lines and the last verse right there. These folks, the repentant, have nothing to hide and thus no reason to fear what the light will reveal. They're not playing this game of darkness and trying to engage in stuff and hide it. They do what they do out in the open, right in front of the light, because they come to the light. They're not, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no game playing here. Really what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that the repentant do the exact opposite of the unrepentant. Right? The contrast is these people run from the light, hate the light, try to hide their deeds. These ones over here do the opposite of that. They run to the light. They do things out in the open. There's no shame. That's what he's saying. It's opposites. You know, think of it like this. The repentant run to the light, not away from it. Jesus is like a magnet. His people are drawn to Him and, and even welcome His revelation. They want to hear from the Lord. They, they love the Scripture and love to, to read the words of Jesus and, and, to, and to, to contemplate and to study what He has said to them, even though He rebukes our sin still. We still love to hear from Him. We respond to the Lord not by running and hiding. The repentant respond by running to the light. And we respond in faith and repentance. There's the difference. If you examine or analyze the behavior of a repentant person, you will clearly see that his or her works have been carried out in God. They're not being carried away from God like the unrepentant do when they're trying to hide stuff. You look, if you look at a, a real believer who has faith in Jesus Christ, who is turning from sin and all that, you're going to notice how their behavior is. And you're going to see a pattern of doing things in the Lord and for the Lord, obedience to Him. You're going to see that. You're not going to see the opposite. You might see traces of the opposite, and that's where you step up and say, Hey, bro, I just kind of noticed you're kind of playing a little game here, and you got this. Okay, man, let me, let, let's pray with me, man. Let's get on track. That's how the believer responds. You analyze a repentant person's life, you're going to see that his works are being carried out in God, that he does things for the Lord and, and through the Lord and for his glory. The stuff they do or say and do will be characterized by truth and righteousness, not lies and deception or darkness. If you analyze the behavior of an unrepentant person, pray before you do that, but if you do that, you will clearly see that his or her works are being or have been carried out in darkness. There is a pattern of darkness. There's a pattern of sin. There's a pattern of wickedness. The stuff they say and do will be characterized by evil and wickedness. Now, I went ahead and put together a quick list of ten things repentant people do from John's Gospel. These are things that I found in John's gospel in different places that represent the behavior and attitude of the repentant, right? I, I, could, I don't have to go to the Bible to give you examples of what unrepentant people do. I can reflect upon my first 30 years of life. I'd rather spare you. But I want to give you 10 things and maybe just talk about each one briefly. The first is repentant people love the light. That's what we're looking at in verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. They love the light. They love Jesus. They love, the, the, they love not only Jesus as the light, but they love the light of His revelation. They love the Word of God and what it says and how it challenges them and how it exhorts them, how it corrects them, how it instructs them. They just, they just love the totality of who Jesus is and, and all that He represents. That's what it means to be repentant. Remember, it's a new love. Second, repentant people practice the truth. Chapter 3, verse 21. It's not a matter of just loving the truth and the light. It's a matter of practicing it. Remember, repentant people are active, 
actively practicing truth, actively turning from sin, actively engaging in spiritual warfare against their flesh, against the devil, and so on. Repentant people practice the truth. I I think you could stop right there. You can test yourself. Am I one who practices the truth? If not, you're not repentant, which means you're missing a vital component, which means you have not been born again. Repentant people practice the truth. They love the light. They practice the truth. Repentant people come to the light. That's also in verse 21. They come to Jesus not just for salvation, for mercy, for grace, for the gospel, but for his blessings, for his help, for his camaraderie and friendship, for fellowship with him, to confess. They come to him. He is the Lord of their life, and they keep coming to him and coming to him and coming to him. You don't come to Jesus and then never come back to Jesus. Being a a, a really saved, converted person has to do with relationship, right? You've heard it said, it's not religion, it's relationship. That is so true. It sounds trivial and pretentious, but it is true. This is about actively pursuing and coming back to the light. We keep coming to the light. We keep coming to the light. Kind of like those dumb mosquitoes to my bug light. They never learn. Except when we come to Jesus, we don't get zapped. We get graced, right? They just keep coming to the light. You don't, you don't come to the light once. Well, I came to Jesus at a revival. What are you doing now? Now I, now I come to the bar and I get my, my belly up and I, I get hammered and I take women. Get out of here. That's not coming to the light. You don't come once. The believer continues to come to the light. He or she loves the light, prefers the light. Four, repentant people carry out their works in God. That's verse 21, right, of chapter 3. They carry out their works in God. The idea there is that they don't have to hide what they're doing from God and that they serve God and do things that please Him and bring Him glory. Remember the opposite. The other one's running into the darkness and trying to hide what they're doing. Man, the repentant person, they do stuff in the name of Jesus and for Jesus, and they're not trying to hide stuff. I would pause there to say there are times where we, as, even as genuine believers, attempt to hide things from God. I, I'd say we have a, a, an ability to do that. And that, that's, that's, that's of the flesh. doesn't necessarily constitute that we've never been converted or a true believer. Sometimes we play that game. And then, then you come to church that Sunday and the, the, the minister preaches a sermon on, on you know, omnipresence, the omnipresence of God, how He's everywhere, and you go, dang it, I ain't hiding nothing. I thought I was. Typically, what we do is we don't attempt to hide our sins from God. We attempt to hide them from each other. Well, I don't want Joe over there to know what I've been doing because he's going to get on me about it. You know, I don't want Jared to know what's going on with me. We, we can play that game. We like to dabble and dip our tootsies in the darkness a little bit. It's like a little pool. We like to get in there a little bit. Oh, that feels good right there. About a week later, I feel terrible. I realize my feet are gone. That was acid. We, we play the game. Doesn't mean you're not converted. We can play the game. We don't play it like unbelievers. Boy, if we play it like unbelievers, then we're probably an unbeliever. We like to dabble in the sin, and that, that's, that's ridiculous. Now, I'll tell you this. Repentance is a lifelong thing, and as long as we're in the flesh, we're going to have to actively participate in it. Let's think of it like that. Because you're going to have to do warfare with sin your whole life. You're going to be battling and battling and battling. And then when you breathe your last breath or the skies crack open and Jesus is up there and says, come on up here, guys. Come on up here. Not you, Phil. What? <laughs> then it changes, right? I can't fly. What's wrong with me? Well, you need help. Yeah. Miles is like, you know, it can happen to ministers. That's why I'm like, Lord, help me. Jesus, right? I test myself. Sometimes I don't see what should be there. We can play that game. Let's get right. Let's not play that game. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's not play in the darkness. There's no profit in it. It doesn't bring anything good into our lives or help anything else in the cause of Christ. Fifth, repentance. Repentant people obey the Son, S-O-N, capital S, Chapter 3, verses uh, 36, right? They obey Jesus. They obey Jesus. Is that you? 
See, if you're a repentant person, if you've been truly converted and all that stuff lines up, you're going to be one who, who obeys. It's not just, I like to obey Him. I work to obey Him. It's my joy to obey my Lord, right? I obey Jesus. When He, when he gives me instruction here, I say, man, I, I'm going to work on that. I want to do that for your glory. I want to do that to help this person or that person, whatever. They have this propensity and desire to obey. And repentance means action, so they do obey. Obey the Son. They obey the light. They obey Jesus. Very important that we understand this. Repentant people honor God. They honor God. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. They honor God with their lives, with their behavior. They don't do it perfectly. I've been trying to say that all the time. But it is part of their default. It's what they want. They want to honor God with their life. They understand that the Father has given them life and graced them with faith and repentance. And they take a hold of faith and repentance and want to live those things out to their fullest. And they want to cultivate those things and and grow those things and just spend their time honoring God. It says in, in one of the epistles, I can't remember exactly where it is, it says, do all things for the glory of God. And that's the, the attitude and the mindset and the action of the repentant person. They honor God. They're constantly trying to do that. You know, I, I remember a time, uh, and I, I need to get back here, but I remember a time in my faith, it was early on, where I really did ponder just about everything I was about to do, and I would ask myself, is this going to honor God? You would think that after being in the faith for a long time, I would still do that. That is something that I did a lot more up on the front end of my conversion. When I first got, I just wanted to, I mean, I tell you what, I threw away so many Pulp Fiction DVDs and CDs. I just didn't want that stuff in my house. And none of these things honor God. And, and I don't want to engage. And that was my attitude, my, my attitude, like an artichoke. That was my attitude. That was, that was weird. That was my heart cry, Right? I would literally say, if I, if I go do this, how is this going to honor God? And then, then I would consciously make a decision. Okay, that's not, this is going to honor Him, but this is not going to honor Him. Or how, how are my words, have you ever prayed that in the morning? Like, help my words to honor you today. And then, you know, you get behind somebody that doesn't know how to drive and your words don't honor Him. <laughs> I didn't say it, I thought it. <laughs> Same thing. God's like, I hear you. I didn't say anything. Yes, you did. You, you have this mindset of honoring Him in all things, and that's what you want to do, right? When you find areas of your life that don't honor Him, that, follow, fall, that fall short, pardon me, that fall short, then you, you want the repentant person is active, right? They, they want to correct those things and do the right thing. And, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer to, to do that in certain scenarios, right? Some of the things that we've engaged in or done or gotten ourselves involved in aren't just a decision. That maybe it begins with a decision, but there are many steps that we must uh, actively engage in before that situation is reconciled or fixed. But the repentant person wants to honor God and wants to make things right. Repentant people do good deeds. Chapter 5, verse 29. This is the idea of doing things that are carried out in God. They do good deeds according to the, the uh, parameter or perimeter, parameters of Scripture. Good deeds are things that are wholesome and helpful and kind and loving and, and you know, that, that, that um, propel the gospel and, and all these sorts of things. They do good deeds, good things, wholesome things, things that are righteous. You know, the unrepentant, you can easily say they do the opposite. They do things that are destructive and wicked and nasty. Good deeds. Uh, repentant people love God. Chapter 8, verse 42. Repentance is about a new love. I used to love sin, now I love God. I love God. And I would add to that loving others too, because that's the great commandment, right? It's love God and love people. Repentant people love God. They, they have a growing love for God. It's not an infatuation. It's not selfish. It's I love God. I realize what He's done and I love Him. And you're growing in that love and you're pursuing that love and you want that love to expand as you are gaining knowledge of His love for you, right? He loves us first, then we love Him back. But we just love God and we want to just build on that and keep loving God and growing in our love for God. And obviously that's going to show itself through good deeds and obedience to the Son and carrying out our works in God and coming to the light. All of these things reflect Loving God. 
repentant people follow Jesus. Boy, that's a no-brainer. Chapter 10, verses 26 through 28. Repentant people follow the light. They follow Jesus. You, you can't be a true believer and say, I love Jesus and I'm all in for Him and then, then not even know Him and not follow Him. You got to learn about who He is and, and follow His directives and, and do what He tells you to do, right? There's a lot of people out there today that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and all this, but there's no following Jesus, man. Or they're following some other Jesus. There are other Jesuses. First uh, John, I believe, or John at least, the same guy that authored this book, talks about antichrists. There are people out there that will pose as Jesus. Angels pose as uh, servants of righteousness, or demons pose as servants of right- I mean, righteousness. There's just a lot of deception. There's a lot of bad stuff. There are fake Jesuses. The only Jesus that we're ever going to know is the one who's represented in this Scripture right here. And, and, the, and the, the repentant person searches the Scripture and, and finds the Lord here in the Scripture and, and, and you know, wants to follow Him and says, oh, look what He's doing here and how He cared for this person. I want to do that. Or look at how He glorified the Father here. Because, right, that's ultimately what Jesus did, spend all His time glorifying the Father. I want to do that. I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live out his example. There was an old song that used to say, you want to be his hands and his feet. It sounds cheesy, but it's kind of true, right? We want to be like, we can't be Jesus, only Jesus is Jesus, but we certainly should aim at being like him and following him and living the way he did and bringing God glory and preaching the gospel and doing the things. Even laying down our lives for others, right? Especially your spouse, men, living a sacrificial life. That's, That's following Jesus. Last, repentant people keep Jesus' commandments. It's really the same thing as following Him. Chapter 14, verse 15. We, repentant people, do what Jesus commands. Uh, you can, you got to be careful because you can get into the mode where you look here, maybe you got a red-letter Bible or whatever, and you see the instruction of Jesus and you rejoice over that and love that, but then you go about your business and don't do what He tells you to do. This is why James warns us in, in his little epistle, you know, be a, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. I say we're supposed to obey all of the Scripture. You know, we're supposed to do... Jesus really spoken through the whole thing here because He's God, but ultimately we, we need to be doers. Repentant people are doers of the commandments of Jesus, not just kind of infatuated with the idea of that or I like what He says here. Well, you understand that's fine to like what He says. That, that, that sounds right but you, you understand that you're supposed to be doing what He says? See, a repentant person does what He says and works to do what He says. So those are ten examples, right, of what repentant people do. I hope I've been describing all of us in this room. I want to begin to wrap it up. The first sign of true conversion is a new birth. It's regeneration, right? We looked at that. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That's the starting point. You remember what John Murray said? Regeneration is the beginning of all saving grace in us, right? So that's the starting point. How do you know you're truly converted? You've been born again. And that's by the will and work of God, not by you. We don't make ourselves born again by believing or repenting or anything. Those things follow. This is a, an act of divine, sovereign will, Sovereign power, sovereign grace. And it is the starting point, as Murray said in his brilliant words. The second sign of true conversion is a new faith. Okay, first is a new birth. The second is a new faith. And how did we define faith last week? We defined faith as knowledge, conviction, and trust in the full person and work of Jesus Christ. We sadly have reduced faith down to just kind of believing in Jesus or whatever, but you can't believe in someone you don't know. So there's a knowledge component there. So whenever you think of faith or see faith in Scripture, think knowledge of who Jesus is and what He did. Conviction, that means belief in what Jesus and who He is and what He did. And trust, that you are putting your whole trust in who He is and in what He did. That is the true definition of faith. 
So you have a new birth. You got that regeneration. You got the new faith there, right? That's the second sign. It's there. Man, I love Jesus. I love what he did for me. It's all about that. I'm believing and trusting in him and him alone. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm not trusting in Buddha. I'm not trusting in Allah. I'm not trusting in anyone other than Jesus for my redemption. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, I have salvation. That's the heart cry. That's faith. The third sign of true conversion is a new love. It's repentance. What is repentance? If we boil down verses 19 through 21, it is hating the darkness. It is hating sin, despising it, despising its destructiveness and what it causes in the world and in our own lives, mostly hating it and despising it because God hates it and despises it. Repentance is hating the darkness, hating sin. It is not walking in the darkness, turning away from sin and darkness. It is loving the light, coming to the light, walking in the light. Okay? That's repentance, turning from darkness turning to the light, walking in the light, loving the light, loving Jesus. That is it, okay? How do you know if you've experienced a new birth, regeneration? Faith and repentance will be there in you. They are the fruits that immediately spring forth. It's like a vine in the ground. Regeneration is the vine and the fruit that comes right out of That is faith and repentance. Those things will be there in your life. That's how you know that you've been born again. So if you have faith but no repentance, you have not been born again. If you have repentance but no faith, you have not been born again. All three will be present and two follow the other one. I like what Murray wrote. Again, he says, faith and repentance are impossible to disentangle. The reason why I tell you this is because there's a movement out there that talks about how repentance is not uh, essentially part of this whole deal. Uh, They're the free grace people that say, no, it's not about turning from sin. It's just about believing. Well, then we have to throw away John 3 and a lot of other scriptures. Repentance will be there. It is inseparable. It is intertwined in the faith. Both come to us as gifts that come out of regeneration. And you know what? I will say this. We are responsible for both of those. God gives them to us. We must, in, we must do something with them. And the person who's been born again will do something with them. Right? They will. They, whoa, hey, whoa, I believe in Jesus now. Whoa. And then start running with that. Start growing in that. Hey, I I don't love sin anymore like I used to. Wow, Pulp Fiction shouldn't be in my house. Practical application. Get rid of that stuff. You see? They they will respond with those things. They'll they'll take up those things and run with them. They may not understand them all that well up front, but the newly converted person will engage those things and put their trust and love in Jesus, and they, they will turn and turn and turn from sin and turn to God. That's what they will do. It happens. It is impossible for it not to happen. But know that you're responsible for that faith and that repentance. You have to actively engage in those things, even though God's graced you with them. The reason why, uh, lastly, the reason why I mention that you've got these variations of this is because it is totally and absolutely possible to have one without the other. There are people who claim to believe in Jesus, but their lives are no different. They live a life of darkness. There's no evidence. If you were to analyze them, you would, they, they might testify and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know, and all that. But there's no repentance. There's no life change. There's no new love. None of that's there. I, I say this to you because I've met many, many people like this. Oh, I love Jesus. Yeah. Why are you, why are you still doing these things then? Why are you still actively practicing homosexuality? Well, because it's, 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 it's okay, as long as we love each other. Oh. No. I'm reminded of the scripture that, that where Paul is admonishing people, and he, he says a little phrase, as some of you were. Uh, some of you were revilers and homosexuals and all these things. Were. That's not who you are anymore. Were. We actively participated in certain things. 
before our conversion. Once we're converted, we're now warring against those things and trying our best to avoid them and bring God glory. But there are people who say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Oh, yeah, they go to church and all that, but there's no repentance. There's no warfare. There's no active pursuit of righteousness. And there are religious people who act repentant by abstaining from just about every form of evil, but their faith is not there or superficial. Isn't that Nicodemus? Boy, if you analyzed his life, you'd think he was the most devout believer on the face of the earth, but he didn't even believe in Jesus. Judas Iscariot didn't believe in Jesus, but through his actions and the fact that he was hiding some of his sin, you'd look at him and think, gosh, that guy's committed. I wish I could be like him. Oh, you want to be a son of perdition? That's not good. Well, I didn't know. Okay. No, there are, there are people who say they believe and there's no repentance. There are people who live lives of abs, you know, abstaining in these things, but their faith is superficial. It's important that we test ourselves, friends, to see if we have been regenerated, to see if we've been born again. If faith and repentance are present and enduring, right, because they keep going and going and going, they're not one-time things. If faith and repentance are, are present and enduring, they continue, God has obviously performed this miracle in us. If one or the other is missing, probably not. And I'll just close with this. What became of Nicodemus? Did he walk away from this conversation with Jesus unfazed? Well, evidence from John's gospel suggests that he was converted and became a follower of Jesus. John chapter 7, Nicodemus boldly challenges his peers, telling them that Jesus has rights under their law and is entitled to a fair trial. What unbeliever does that? That doesn't sound like an unconverted person. In John chapter 19, we see uh, Nicodemus spend a small fortune on supplies for Jesus' burial. Kind of an unbeliever goes way out of their way to provide an incredible funeral for Jesus. He bought lotions and myrrh and these things, just priceless stuff that the average Joe couldn't buy. He spends a fortune on these things for Jesus. And not only that, he partners with a believer, Joseph of Arimathea, to prepare Jesus' body for the tomb. Does that sound like the behavior of an unconverted person? No way. No way. What about Acts 15.5? It says, some of the believers, referring to some in the church, belonged to what? The party of the Pharisees. Well, that sounds like some of them Pharisees, like Nicodemus and some others there, got saved and became part of the church. I think Nicodemus was one of them. I believe he was. Notice the progression in John's gospel. In chapter 3, we see the resistance of Nicodemus. In chapter 7, we see the courage of Nicodemus. You can't try him like this. And in chapter 19, we see the worship of Nicodemus, buying the lotions and hooking Jesus up with a killer burial. That's worship. He went from resistor to worshiper. And I'm here to tell you only the grace of God in Jesus Christ can bring about that kind of radical change in anyone's life. Test yourself. Have you been truly converted? Have you experienced regeneration? Have you been born again? Do you have faith, which is knowledge, conviction, and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you repentant? Do you hate the darkness and love the light? Do you come to the light? Do you walk in the light? If the answer is yes, rejoice. Give God praise. Thank Him for His grace. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. If you know your life does not square, line up with Jesus' teachings here in, in John chapter 3, if you, if you know it's not there, you know the faith thing's missing or the repentant thing is missing, you don't find yourself as, as being a different person and all that, you know, if that's who you are, just, just be honest with yourself. Don't keep running to the darkness and lying and playing the game. Call out to God. Cry out to God for mercy. Ask Him to change you. Ask Him to change you. One of my all-time favorite quotes is by the Anglican reformer J.C. Ryle. I would say, read anything and everything from him. 
We used to have this quote up on our website for a long time. I'm ending with it. The ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace. Ask him for mercy. Plead with him to change you. He's a good God. He doesn't turn away people who come to him like this. Amen?